You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Dias and Konichiwa bitches. Welcome to the Abacabo Cafe. And as an aside, uh, how difficult is it to say Konichiwa without saying Konichiwa bitches? I don't know about you. Impossible for me to say Konichiwa without saying Konichiwa bitches. I am Jason Almy. Welcome to Abacabo Cafe. It's finally time to jump into it. I'm excited that we're finally going to be talking about the uh, very first episode of the television series, episode one, entitled A Transfer Student. Tis embarrassing to say, but I'll fall in love for the first time. Title is a bit of a mouthful. Originally aired April 6th of 1987. It's been 34 years since the premiere of this episode. Directed by Kobayashi Kazuhiko. Written by Terada Kenji, as most of the episodes are. Many of the episodes are. This is our very first episode, and this is going to set the stage. Back in the day when I was younger, I was first approaching this series... Uh, until more recently, the first few episodes were always were always those episodes that you, you, you kind of set everything up, put air, put all the pieces into place, and you, you had to get through them to get on to the more enjoyable stuff. But honestly, as I've rewatched the show more recently, it's these first few episodes that really offer up quite a bit of stuff for analysis. There's just a lot there. These first few episodes are chock full. So I'm going to try to stick to my plan of keeping this episode to a half hour, but I'm going to apologize to you in advance if we go a little bit past a half hour, because there's just a lot of stuff to cover in this first episode. This is our first exposure to Orange Road and to all of the various things. We've got our Seishun Shtemas opening. Okay, so this is Kasuga's kind of cold open. We've never seen any of these characters yet. And he's already introducing himself. He's already taking this photograph. Um, as I mentioned in the previous episode, photos are a tremendous motif throughout this this series. Kasuga's father is a photographer. Kasuga is a budding photographer himself, as you can see in the Seishun Shitimas opening. Uh, he's taking a photo, and then every single episode ends with a still frame image of a photograph from the episode. So 
the the session stemas that I'm referring to is the the line that Kasinga delivers as he's introducing himself in this opening. The the current translation on the Blu-ray discs that you'll also see if you're watching the show on Crunchyroll or Retro Crush, I believe, is Living the Best Years of My Youth. That's the translation for the Japanese Seishun Shitemas. The An alternate translation that I've seen on fan subs is Living the Springtime of My Youth, which uh, Seishun is often... Uh, translated as the springtime of one's youth. It's uh, regardless, either translation is letting you know that he's going through this, this, uh, these formative years where he's a young man and he's, he's coming up in the world. He's, he's about to go through a whole bunch of shit for the very first time relevant, but maybe not widely known for English speakers is that uh, Kasuga, the, the family name of, of the main character, his name is written using, Two kanji. The first kanji is spring, plus the second uh, kanji is day. So his name, Kasunga, is written as spring day. So I think there's some symbolic significance here to the Seishun connection because it's oftentimes viewed as this sort of springtime of life, of uh, of that period of adolescence and teenage years where you're you're kind of having these first experiences in in life and relationships and you're sort of coming out into the period of of your life where you start to become interested in romantic relationships with other people so you know that's already setting the stage here with with the character name and connecting it to the theme of springtime and again as I mentioned in the last episode, all of these episodes are uh, occurring contemporaneously with the original air date. So this episode originally aired April 6th of 1987. So the events that we're witnessing transpire as we watch this episode are occurring on or around April 6th of 1987, very near to that date. So the, the show is even opening in spring, and uh, I, I, as I mentioned in the previous episode, I don't think that's by mistake. Obviously, the story could have started anywhere. Any story has to start on a day, whether it's the day Kasuga's family moves to a new town or whether it's the day Kasuga was born or, or maybe it's the day that his father conceived him. Fact of the matter is, story is always going to start on a day. In this case, they chose spring. They chose April, early April. This is uh, dead set smack right there in spring perfect um and i think that's that is done intentionally and it is meant to connect to the themes presented in that session stemas opening as well as to connect to the way that kasuga is written after the the uh session stemas opening we get uh the very first opening theme night of summerside Absolute bop, certified bop. That shit slaps. I, you know, I I don't know. It could be because I'm an old timer, but I've got no time for new music. But I've got all the time in the world for more Night of Summerside. It's upbeat. It's energetic. The intro animation. It's cut like every drum beat, and it might give you an epileptic seizure. But if you live to tell the tale, you're gonna be telling your kids, your grandkids, your great grandkids. You're gonna. Carve it on your tombstone. Night of Summerside is a certified bob. It's got these urban themes of spontaneity. There's some animation that's used in the in the Night of Summerside intro that 
doesn't appear in any episodes. Casca's jumping off something. There's some graffiti. It's unapologetically 80s, and I, I think it kind of lays the groundwork pretty well of, of what to expect from the show, which overall is a little bit quirky and definitely a product of the 80s. So that's a just that's a highlight. There's going to be every single episode opening like that. Damn, perfect. That's a great way to start the show. But then after the, uh, the after the opening, you get the the title sequence, of course, tells you the name of the episode. And the, the intro episode sets its storytelling priorities with the the very first true scene as we as we open the episode up. Kasuga is climbing the stairs of his new town that he's moved to. And in the scene, he meets Ayukwa. And this is primarily their story. It's important. It's significant that Kasuga meets Ayukwa first before he meets anyone else in the new town. It's primarily their story. It's putting them first. The other characters in the show, Kasuga's family, his, the twins, uh, his sort of friends, Komatsu and Hata, the, even, even Shikaru is, is of less importance to the, to the, the, the story and to the, the overall arc of this uh, narrative than uh, Kasuga and Ayuko. It's their story. It really is uh, about them. And in the scene, you're not given any indication that he's an Asper. He catches her hat for sure, but we don't know that he used the power to catch the hat. It could have been a good catch. There's a good question as to whether or not he used his ESP power to catch Ayuko's hat when he when he saw it. I mean, it was she even she comments. Nice catch. You know, that was maybe not an easy catch for someone as unathletic as Costco to make. And yet this television program, as you've seen in this episode, you'll see it in every subsequent episode. Every time Costco uses the power, there are a few cues to tell you as the viewer that he's using the power. Uh, firstly, there's the visual cue. The the camera will typically uh, focus in on Kasinga. It will show you his face as he concentrates in order to use the power. He'll scrunch his eyes up. He'll furrow his brow, and he'll use the power. Then there's also an audible hint, a, kind of a tone, that makes a sound when he uses the power. So every time he uses the power throughout the show, it's not a surprise. We know he's doing it. We see him doing it. We hear him doing it. There's this little jingle that goes with the power, and we don't see or hear that when he catches the hat. So there's really no indication that possibly he used the ESP to catch the hat, and that's important in just a second. Now, his his ESP power is revealed in the second scene, of course, after he, he runs home with his new red straw hat, and he's in such a good mood because his family just moved to the, the best town in the world because he just met Ayukawa, but... We, we, we see that he's an Esper next. It's, again, it's not as important part of the story as the, the relationships and the themes of youth and growth and romance that, that Kasuga is going to go through the ESP stuff. It's part of the milieu. So uh, during, their, during their initial meeting, it's interesting. Kasuga and Ayukawa really don't exchange very uh, much more than a few words before they get into an argument. They get into this heated argument, of course, about the number of stairs that Costco just counted versus how many Ayukawa got. They don't agree. And uh, they go back and forth for, for just a brief moment in an argument. 
Kasuga's not willing to back down, neither is Ayukawa, and uh, that shows, it demonstrates a, a, a bit of a, like a persistence at least on both, both of their parts, maybe a little bit of hard-headedness and stubbornness, which we will see in a future episode down the line. Uh, they get into a little bit of a, they butt heads a little bit, they clash a little bit, um, and that argument actually establishes a parallel for the that we see again at the conclusion of the episode. So we we have these book ends, but this is the first end of the books where where they get into this kind of argument. But it ends so well. Casca is able to resolve this argument. He dissolves the tension with relative ease for him. And I think this is worth noting because throughout the television series, all forty eight episodes plus the OVA. Casca is, is portrayed kind of as this unremarkable, I mean, even though he's an Esper, he's still kind of unremarkable. No one knows he's an Esper, so they all kind of consider him unremarkable. And he's this sort of everyman. I mean, he can't be he can't be too remarkable in any one specific way because then it's he's not as relatable for the general audience. I mean, to some degree, Casca has to be generalizable. So it, it begs the question, what value does he offer to Ayuko on a relationship? Why would Ayukawa be interested in this guy? He's not particularly handsome and dashing. He's not particularly athletic. Uh, he's not particularly wealthy. There must be some other qualities. And, of course, Ayukawa is not a, a shallow lady. She's not looking for a man with money or, or flashy looks or something like that. But but I think I've often wondered on rewatches of the show, what about Costco, what are his personal qualities that she found so appealing? But here in this opening scene, he's able to pivot from an argument with her into this humorous moment. He's actually able to kind of turn things, uh, do a 180, make her laugh out of this argument. And on top of that, he's new to town, so he shows no fear of her. He's initially completely unintimidated by her. He doesn't know who he's dealing with. He doesn't know that she's Madoko the pick. I mean, she could totally kick his ass, but he's got no knowledge of that. So he's willing to argue with this person. And who knows, that could have been a breath of fresh air for her, that most people are not willing to cross her. And therefore, she doesn't maybe get treated in the kind of um, equal way that she might want to be. She's not treated equitably as she is with Casca, who in in this scene, he's decently charming. So as we all know, the Casca family just moved to town. And I think there's something really quaint about the Casca's having to move every time their power is discovered or they think it's discovered because sometimes they jump the gun, as we see in a future episode too. And they're just ready to pack up and move because they think people know about the power. And I always thought it was interesting too. It's like nobody's chasing the Costco goes around. There's, there's never at any point, spoiler alert for you guys watching the show for the very first time. Uh, it's not really a spoiler, but there's never a scene. There's no government agency chasing these people. There's no like X files, Mulder and Scully trying to type characters, trying to, trying to uh, find the Costco family and track them from town to town. They just move. Somebody finds out about the power and they move. That's that's how it goes. They just got to move. Why? I don't know. Honestly, I love the fact that they don't build the power subplot up too much. They don't these people aren't on the run from uh the CIA or the Japanese version of the CIA, Japanese intelligence or something like that. They're just they just move. I don't know. They don't want people to know that they're psychic or they're espers and 
they, they, they leave town, but there's no, there's no time devoted in the series to, uh, other characters that are maybe trying to hunt them down for nefarious reasons. I, and, and to me, honestly, that was the best choice they could have made and they could have gone that way. A lot of other shows would have gone that way and introduced that as a subplot at least. But in this case, there's just the general idea that if they're found out, they have to move. They don't want to have to do that. So of course we've got to keep the power under wraps. More than anything, though, I think having this amazing power, having this incredible ability that's that's so rare, but having to keep it completely secret, I think, is is maybe a more important. It's it's less about providing a plot where they have to run from government agents and more about making a statement about conformity. I mentioned that in the previous episode. It's about trying to fit in. And especially for teenagers, that's a massive thing about trying to find a peer group, about trying to fit in with the peer group and not stand out too much or draw too much negative attention to yourself. And um, I think that's kind of closer to the metaphor that they're going for is that these kids are really just trying to be normal kids despite, despite their power. And the the use of color, I think, is very important in the opening scene as well, where where in this this pivotal opening scene where Kasuga meets Ayukawa for the first time, Ayukawa is dressed vibrantly when she first meets Kasuga. For her um, whimsical ways, she's in a pretty good mood. She's smiling at him. They flirt a little bit. Her outward appearance, her exterior appearance, does match with her red Hawaiian t-shirt is red. Ayuka was color. She's got that red bathing suit as well. The red bikini that shows up. I, I think maybe that you could, you could form an argument for that, but the, the use of color when she's uh, the use of color to go with kind of her capricious nature, her whimsical, uh, her kimagure nature. The, the, the idea is that um, she has this vibrant clothing on when she first meets Kasuga and um, at school, of course, Uniform is more drab. It's relatively colorless, actually. We've all seen the you know the anime where they got the they still wear the school uniforms, the sailor style school uniforms, and they're like bright blues and bright reds. These uniforms are extremely drab. They're they're very drab. They're like this grayish kind of just blah, right? It makes sense that the uniforms aren't going to be fun and loud. I mean, that's sort of the point of uniforms. But it also shows that um, in this garb, Ayukawa tends to be more reserved in this public setting, this public school setting. She's a little bit more standoffish. She's not the same Ayukawa that, that Casca met in the very first scene. And the color is an artistic choice. It's meant to be tied to Ayukawa's mood. She is, of course, the, the capricious main character. She's the one who's referred to as whimsical. Kasuga and Ayukawa's relationship takes an unfortunate turn at their second meeting. Doesn't go quite as well. And this is where we set up that parallelism or we we capitalize on that parallelism that we set up in the first scene. Um, the, 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 the final scene of the show, of course, Kasuga catches a lot of shit for being this kind of wishy-washy guy. He can't make up his mind. He's there's all these parallels drawn in future episodes, which we will mention when we get there, um, of him trying to make a choice between two options and having a difficult time because both options are appealing. And 
I, I will agree that a lot of a lot of the shit he catches later in the show is mostly deserved by the time we get into I don't know the teens for the episodes and beyond. Uh, you know, maybe maybe most of this is on him at that point, but. As far as the the love triangle goes between between Kasuga, Ayukawa, and Shikaru-chan, you get the sense. I think they they try to impress upon you that Kasuga needs to, like, um, yeah, you should shit or get off the pot, nut up and just make it make a choice, right? And his sisters constantly nudge him too, but I, I think actually you can make a good case watching rewatching this episode. You can make a very very valid case that. Possibly a fair amount of Kasuga's indecisiveness with regard to the love triangle, Ayukawa and Shikaru-chan. It really is Ayukawa's fault. Ayukawa kind of punks Kasuga for no apparent reason at their second meeting. Even before he lectures her for smoking, we can see she gets upset for that. But she denies that she met Kasuga the day before. When Kasuga asks, hey, aren't you the one that I met yesterday? She's like, ah, I don't know this guy. Shikaru-chan even says, do you know, do you know this person? And she's like, hell no, I don't know. And so Casca's like, what the hell? Of course, that sort of sets him off. And then he responds with the smoking lecture. But why would Ayukawa lie about not having met Casca the day before? When she did, in fact, meet him the day before, she even gave him her, her precious, her beloved hat. I can only presume maybe it was to preserve her kind of cool kid rebel facade. She maybe didn't want to admit something to Shikaru-chan, which is odd. It it seems later in the series that she and Shikaru are so close that they're like sisters. They've known each other their whole lives. And it doesn't seem like she's trying to maintain a facade for Shikaru-chan's sake. So uh, I don't know if I feel like the cool kid rebel facade is really, she's just trying to keep up this cool kid facade or she's got another reason for, for lying about um, not meeting Costco the day before. Maybe if you guys are listening, maybe one of you guys has a theory. I'd love to hear it. But I think if she had talked to, to Costco, like he was a real person during that interaction, I think if she had been a little bit more honest, if she had been honest that she had met him the day before, then Shikaru-chan would have acknowledged that she met Kasuga first. She might have had a chance to uh, stake a claim on Kasuga before Shikaru-chan got a chance to get emotionally invested in him. So when Shikaru straight up asks, is this a friend of yours? She could have said something like, well, I met him yesterday or something like that. And it, it didn't need to go to this extreme where where it did. I mean, it did in order for us to get 48 episodes of television, but honestly, she could, but she could have been more honest from the get-go, and I think that, that Shikaru-chan would have had a more honest appraisal of, of their relationship prior to Kasuga transferring into school that day, and I think things could have developed a little bit bit differently between the principal three. There may not have been a love triangle at all. And then we wouldn't have had 48 episodes and, and eight OVA and a, and a couple of movies to enjoy. So maybe we should be glad. But I like to think that Ayukawa had a reason for punking Kasuga other than giving us 48 episodes of television. Also, at this point, I don't really blame Kasuga 
you know, after after this event, I don't blame Costco for not really knowing how to uh, approach Ayukawa. I think this kind of opens the door for Shikarachan, as I said. I, I think he doesn't know, you know, uh, in their first argument, he's able to pivot so deftly into a joke and laughter and everything's cool. And here it's just it blows up in his face. He's just not able to rescue this situation. Ayukawa seems completely unwilling to, you know, to let him off the hook or to to release the tension of the situation. So Ayukawa really in this instance gives Kasuga every reason to wonder if she likes him or not, whether or not he should even be talking to her. Uh, Shikaru-chan's pursuit of Kasuga and Kasuga's indecisiveness towards both girls is at least initially in these first few episodes Ayukawa's doing. And at the point in time in which Kasuga destroys her cigarette, Ayukawa was right to get pissy with Kasuga for that whole smoking lecture. Kasuga tells her specifically if she smokes, she won't be able to have healthy babies. And I think this is the line that probably pisses her off. This is probably the reason why things didn't go so well for Kasuga throughout the course of this interaction. Because here he's kind of reinforcing this societal view of women as reproductive machines, that that uh, her reproductive capacity is her primary or maybe even her sole value. I'm not sure that Casca meant that or that he was specifically thinking that this person is worth her reproductive value and no more, but that is what he, that's what came out of his mouth. So when viewed through a more feminist lens, then you do kind of see how focusing on whether or not her babies will be healthy and not whether or not she could get lung cancer and that, that it's an unhealthy uh, habit and that that it could quite possibly shorten her life. You, you focus instead on, well, we got to make sure that we can get healthy babies out of you. So what the hell? Um that that could be that from a feminist point of view, someone like Ayukawa, who we're going to learn uh, is a nonconformist in a lot of ways and uh, resents. I think she I think she deeply resents the idea that certain norms are put on her by society. Um, and 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 we learn in this scene very early on, very first episode, that Ayukawa has this complex relationship with the social norms of 1980s Japan. Um, the idea that she should behave a certain way or that she should have these certain qualities because she's female, uh, like uh, obedience, uh, she should be a diligent student, uh, she should be polite and demure, avoiding conflict. She does none of those things in this episode. She does the opposite of a lot of the shit because that's that's how she bucks the system. That's how she That's how she demonstrates her resentment towards the the idea that there are these sort of social expectations for women and that she objects to having these expectations put on her. And the idea that she's got to guard her future reproductive capacity, that it makes sense that she would respond so negatively to that. The slap might've been taking it a little too far, but on the other hand, the adrenaline was flowing. She just beat the shit out of like four, um, biker gang dudes and you know maybe now is not the time to get sassy with their Kasuga. it's on the other hand i think there are times that we will see in future episodes where she is like any other teenager sometimes she wishes to fit in and to fit in with her peers uh, we, we see in a future episode she does show concern for her own 
uh, image, the image that she presents and the way people perceive her. And she wants to be perceived as cute sometimes as well. And she's just kind of this badass that smokes and beats people up and doesn't take no shit from Kasuga. So how, how does that jive with her wanting to also at times be perceived as this, like she is a female, but without having these social expectations of femininity put onto her? It's a really complex relationship. And I think in this first episode, we're already seeing some of the complexities of the main characters of Kasuga and Ayukawa. And I think it really is one of the things about the show that whether you realize it or not, it's what pulls people into the show and really gets people invested from the get-go is that you're already seeing these these very uh, complex and nuanced characters, which is part of the achievement of this show and part of what makes this show such a classic. We also learn towards the end of the episode, Ayukawa plays the saxophone. In addition to being a talented martial artist, she's a talented musician as well. And the uh, the still image that we get is is Ayukawa playing the saxophone at the end. And of, of course, we get that still image that then pans outward and is revealed to be a photograph. So we get the very first, and every single episode is going to end like this, guys. And it ends with this, this photograph that's the last image from the show. And this is, again, connects to the very beginning of the of the episode where Casca is taking photos. We learn that his father's a photographer in the episode. So it's a continuation of that motif. But by ending the show in that way, by by kind of zooming out of the action of the show that we've just seen and viewing it in still frame as a photograph, I think it's specifically placed there in that way to um, communicate nostalgia. So that's a a semantic method for communicating the idea that this is already a memory. All of the events of April the 6th of 1987, this is a memory someone's looking back on in the future, and they have this photograph that reminds them of this time. It works super well for viewers catching the series later on. I mean, this is something that that they baked in almost knowing that future audiences in 10, 20, 30 years would be watching this and that the, the, the nostalgia factor is dialed up to a 10 here. And it, it evokes the literal imagery of memories. Photos record moments. They record memories. Given the broad themes of coming of age, the photo motif reminds us at the end of every episode, these are formative days in the life of these characters. These are formative times. They're, these are the times of their lives that they are going to remember forever. And then we get a summer mirage at the end. There's another ending theme that slaps. That's probably my favorite of the three ending themes. And it's just good stuff. We get original animation for the, the, the end there. Honestly, if you could walk out of this first episode and and tell me that you don't like Orange Road, I don't want to know you no more. Unfriend me right now at Avocado Pod, ABCBPOD on Instagram, on Twitter. Don't email me at jason.almy at teamalmy.com. And that's going to do it for us today. I do want to say thank you very, very much to all the folks who have listened to the first two episodes. I've heard back from several of you already and gotten some really tremendous, wonderful feedback. And I do want to thank you. This is a passion project for me. So I do want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to this because 
all throughout the process of working on getting this together, it has been, I've just never known if, if anybody's even going to hear this. Um, Orange Road is not the most popular media franchise these days. It's not the most popular anime. It is the best in my opinion. So, and, and, and it's really just heartening to know that there are other folks out there that really cherish and treasure this media franchise as much as I do, maybe more so, and that you guys are willing to listen to me prattle on for a half hour or more talking about the the various themes and visual cues and motifs, semantics about uh, of, of this of the show. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I want to tell you guys a little bit about my crew. That's us. This podcast, Abacabo Cafe, is a member of the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Check us out at innercirclepn.com. You'll find all of the other Inner Circle podcasts there at that website. Shows like The Untrained Eye, shows like Simmons and More Podcast, Hashtag No Offense Show, The Plunge, Failing Hollywood, and The Hood Diner. You'll find them all there. Also, check me out on Creatures of the Night. Creatures of the Night is a conspiracy theory slash paranormal slash UFO slash just weirdness. We just have a lot of fun. It's like old school Art Bell. We just really try to enjoy ourselves with that show. It's not meant to be, you know, weird or political. We don't get like that. We just honestly, we like talking about doing drugs and yelling bad words at each other. And, you know, we talk about aliens and Akashic Records and DMT. It's all about having fun. Check us out. Creatures of the Night. You'll see a third eye tiger in the artwork and um that's going to do it for us i really i want to say again that i really appreciate you guys for making it this far and uh for listening so we'll be back next week i'm going to talk all about episode two and hopefully i'll be able to keep it to just a uh a half hour 